up, bitch? What's up, people? Welcome to the show, y'all. Welcome to the show. On a gross Monday here in New York. Um, so, full show for you today. I'm just realizing now, as I'm going to my 1,312 stories, that I didn't put them in order. So that's a little bit of a fail, but... At the same time, I don't think it's really that big of a deal. I'll be able to uh, do it as we as we move along here, even though it might be a little sloppy. But so just to give you guys a little bit of a of a sneak peek, a little preview as to what's coming up. Noam Chomsky has weighed in on a radio show about Joe Biden so far and how he thinks Biden is doing as president. It's really it's actually really interesting comments. So we're going to talk about that. Um, I want to talk about the complete and utter implosion of Newsmax, and I don't have the numbers for One American News Network, but I'm pretty sure that it's the same thing for One American News Network, so we're going to dive into that. Um, I have Dr. Fauci being called out in an interview, which I really, really loved. I, you know, I have many criticisms of Mehdi Hassan. Him and I have gone, gotten into it a few times on Twitter, but... Listen, fact of the matter is he actually asked some pretty, some pretty good questions of, um, of politicians so, and of, you know, figures with. So I got the Kamala comment that went viral where she had the greatest Freudian slip of all time, an update on the war in Afghanistan. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez unfortunately goes viral for a bad reason involving foreign policy. Uh, Matt Gates update. I should probably start with the Matt Gates update. There's literally no reason not to start with the Matt Gates update. Okay. Um, anyway, without further ado, let's get started. Here we go. Creepy Matt Gates has responded to the 1,012 allegations against him. Um, and he did it in, I mean, this, this tweet should be hung in the Louvre. Uh, it's just the perfect encapsulation of the modern culture war era. Take a look at what he said. I may be a canceled man in some corners. I may even be a wanted man by the deep state, but I hear the millions of Americans who feel forgotten, canceled, ignored, marginalized, and targeted, or excuse me, but I hear the millions of Americans who feel forgotten, canceled, ignored, marginalized, and targeted. I draw confidence knowing that the silent majority is growing louder every day silent majority? The silent majority of what? Is there a pro-pedo silent majority? Is there, is there a pro-sex crime silent majority? I don't, I mean, the reason why this is beautiful is because every politician is now trying to do their version of the Trump. Because Trump, the brilliance of Trump, and I, I mean this in a very narrow, limited sense and scope, but the brilliance of Trump is to plow forward no matter what, all day, every day. So if there's some sort of scandal, what Trump taught us is you puff your chest out, you put your chin up, and you say, wrong, wrong, you don't know what you're talking about, you're dead wrong, I'm the one that's correct about this. I mean, the best example of this is during the 2016 election against Hillary, uh, when the, I grabbed him by the pussy, I don't even wait, tape leaked, 
And that blew up uh, in the media, and they literally were saying, oh, we think Trump is going to step down before the day's over. That's it. It's done. You can't win after this comes out. Are you crazy? The, the media was seriously expecting him to do an announcement to say, I'm, that's it. I'm out. I'm done. I can't win after this. You know, I apologize. Whatever. What did Trump do? He showed up to the debate, which was like that night or the next night, and the very first question was, of course, about the tape, and Trump brought, like, five or six Bill Clinton accusers to the debate and put them in the front row and was like, listen, some of the things I said are not okay, but let me explain something. This is just locker room talk. This is just locker room talk. It's very different from actions. And let me tell you something about actions. Bill Clinton is a harasser and an abuser and a sexual assaulter and a rapist. And you see that front row right there? All of his people, these are all the women who he's done this to. And it's terrible. I think that Hillary should probably apologize for, for this. And so he took something that was a giant political liability and turned it into a wash, where now people were like, yeah, I guess Trump said terrible things, but at the same time, Bill Clinton might be a rapist. And so what? Hillary's gonna, Hillary and the Clintons and the Democrats are going to wag their finger at Trump over something he said? And so... He just flipped the whole conversation and plowed forward. It was like, wrong, this is not a big deal, and we're going to move forward from this. And actually, they're worse. And so the lesson that everybody took away from that, I, I think rightly, is that the best defense is a good offense in politics. And so what you do is you always play the victim and go on the offense. And that's exactly what Matt Gates is doing here. So instead of Okay, yeah, I guess it's kind of creepy that I, you know, apparently I pay for orgies and some of the women at the orgies were underage and this stuff happened and my best buddy uh, is somebody who's already locked up in Florida. He was a tax collector in Florida and he went down over some sex crime stuff and he's probably telling prosecutors everything about me and, you know, my time is limited and I'm probably going to be in prison in about seven and a half minutes. But it's deep state cancel culture. He's throwing everything he's got. And this, again, it speaks to an issue that is very recent, which is Republicans know they have nothing in terms of substantive policy. And so they just, anything they dislike, they call it cancel culture because they know that the cancel culture thing struck a nerve. And so now they're like, oh, you want to end the wars? Cancel culture. Oh, you want to crack down on Wall Street criminals. Look at this cancel culture. So it's the only thing that they have that has like popular appeal. So they just try to say everything is cancel culture. So in the case of Matt Gates, he's like, ah, you found out I'm a sexual harasser and I've been paying to boink 17 year olds who are underage. This is the deep state plot. And this is the cancel culture and the woke mob coming for me. No pun intended with coming for me. Um, And silent majority, my ass cheeks, by the way, Just so you understand where the rest of the party's at at this moment, Gates requested a meeting with Trump. Trump was like, I'm not meeting with you. Fuck out of here, son. So in other words, even Donald Trump looks at the stories and he's like, ooh, this guy's a giant political liability. This guy fucked up. Gone. Get out of here. Get out of here. So, you know, the normal trick is the Republicans protect their own, come hell or high water. But Matt Gates. The story with Matt Gates has been so gross and sleazy that even Donald Trump, who's the king of overcoming, you know, scandals, even he's like, I'm not, no, I'm not going to waste 
political capital and ammo defending this big-headed freak, this weirdo over here. I got no interest in, in freak boy, Beavis and Butthead-ass character person Matt Gates. And so here we are. So Matt Gates is out there on his own, and he's flailing. This is the definition of flailing. This is the definition of flailing. He's just a gross dude. Like, let's just call it what it is, right? He's, he's just a gross dude. There's another story about how, you know, Matt Gates would, like, on the floor of Congress, he would show off the women he was sleeping with to fellow congresspeople, and he'd, like, show these fellow congresspeople naked pictures of the women he's sleeping with. He would volunteer, like, hey, look, this is, this is somebody I'm, I'm boning. And, I mean, that's just, that's like the definition of a sleazeball, right, or sleazebag. I like sleazeball. That actually sounds more interesting and funny. Um, and, and I remember back in, like, high school and college, you really could tell a lot about somebody's character based on if they do something like that, you know, where there's, because in, in the modern era, every, everybody's got nudes, right, what it is, you know, it, it's just part of dating in, in this day and age. And so, like, there are people who protect the privacy and the intimacy of their partners, and then there's others who are gross and, you know, insecure also, and braggarts like Matt Gates, who's probably showing people who have no interest in even seeing it, hey, look at this person I'm having sex with. People want to have sex with me. See? See? So he's just like, he's just gross. He's just like a gross dude. And when he's in a corner and it's very clear he's going down and he's going down fast, this is what he breaks out. Let me see. What are the things that have landed? Cancel culture. This is cancel culture. The woke mob doesn't even want you sleeping with underage women anymore. Ridiculous. This is cancel culture. And I know the silent majority is with me pay for sex with underage women. I know that for sure. So anyway, take your, like, victim-playing game bullshit for a hike, you freak. You know, uh, like, I'm just, uh, it's just, this really irks me. It really irks me because it's just such a, he's such a spin doctor. You know, he's such a sophist bullshitter. Like, that's what this is. This is pure sophistry, I mean, weave a tale of victimhood and try to flip it, but it's not artful, you know? At least Trump, with the story I just told, was, like, artful and clever with how he flipped the story and went on the offense. This is just, like, shut up. So he doesn't have the, the political chops and the cleverness to get away with this, and I really do think he's going down. I do, because apparently the guy who already went down, his best friend tax collector, is talking to authorities, so if that's the case, it's over, son. The only thing I thought might save him is that he probably knows where all the bodies are buried and knows which other freaks in Congress, what they're into. You know, he knows that Congressman Dick Weasel from Ferretville, Arkansas, likes cactuses up his asshole. So, like, he knows that. He's got dirt on a lot of these people. And so they might, like, protect their own. But listen, all it takes is, like, one good prosecutor who can really uncover it all. And it's like, maybe even Congressman Dick Weasel goes down or whatever name I just came up with. Like, and it seems like there's such a paper trail, you know, like he was using the apps of paying in ways that there's a, there are receipts and so there's no getting away with it, you know, 
So, and his denial originally was terrible where he told Tucker, I never traveled with a 17-year-old. This is nonsense. Check the records. And it's like, you just said you never traveled with a 17-year-old. You didn't say you never paid for sex or had sex with or – he ain't looking good, dog, which is why he's pulling out all the stops. And what we got is cancel culture. This is cancel culture and the woke mobs coming after me. And I know the silent majority is, is with me. There is no silent majority with you, freak boy. It's just you're on your own, dog. Even Trump is now throwing you to the wolves. All right, next. Unfortunately, we are going to talk about what happened with Amazon. The Amazon union vote. So there was an uh, organization or organizing effort in Bessemer, Alabama, um, at the Amazon facility, and it, they had been working on this for quite a while. It became a big national news story. Bernie Sanders, of course, was fighting to try to help them in their union effort. Even Joe Biden came out and had some words of encouragement and said, you know, to the um, executives and the people at the top of the company, hey, you better keep a hands-off approach here and you better not pressure people. Um, so th- this was huge, and, and there are huge, gigantic consequences, reverberating effects, if there was a successful unionization effort in Alabama at the Amazon facility, because then other Amazon facilities will, you know, be emboldened and think like, let's do that here, you know? So um, this was big. They had the vote. Unfortunately, the union failed. So let me give you some information on this. This is from BBC. They say, Amazon has defeated activists hoping to establish the company's first unionized warehouse in the U.S. Workers at the Bessemer, Alabama warehouse voted 1,798 to 738 against the effort labor officials said. That represented a majority of votes cast in the contest, which was seen as a key test for Amazon after global criticism of its treatment of workers during the pandemic. The union said it would challenge the results. It accused Amazon of interfering with the right of employees to vote in a free and fair election, including by lying to staff about the implications of the vote in mandatory meetings and pushing the Postal Service to install a mailbox on company grounds in an effort to monitor the vote. Quote, Amazon has left no stone unturned in its effort to gaslight its own employees, said Stuart Applebaum, president of the Retail Wholesale and Department Store Union, RWDSU, which organized the effort. We won't let Amazon's lies, deception, and illegal activities go unchallenged, which is why we are formally filing charges against all of the egregious and blatantly illegal actions taken by Amazon during the union vote. So uh, they're not wrong. There was a, you know, there was a giant effort on social media where Amazon pays for these bot accounts and troll accounts to defend Amazon. And these accounts would be created with like four followers and they'd be tweeting about how, boy, I sure do love my Amazon factory job. And it sure is great that I have management bark orders at me and I don't have a union. Isn't this wonderful? So they do this, this propaganda effort. The other thing is they try to make the case as aggressively as they possibly can that no, what a union does it's just an added layer of bureaucracy, and they take their union dues from you, so they take money from you, and they're not even able to deliver on their promises of creating a better work environment. And um, the thing with the mailbox they just alluded to here, there's been you know, a number of specific stories of people leading union efforts where there's retaliation against them. And technically, that's illegal, but they get away with it. But you have you know, the, the companies effectively 
get away with it. So, listen, call it what it is. This was an overwhelming defeat. But the interesting thing is, Crystal Ball did a great radar on this, and she outlined that she was predicting that this thing was going to fail. And she, and she did it beforehand, and she said beforehand, this is not any indictment on whether or not unions help workers. Uh, on the contrary, we know they help workers. This is a lot of people who are probably terrified and afraid that they're going to lose their job if they support the union. And so they just feel like, let me play it safe and not rock the boat because I don't want to lose my job. And she was correct. You know, Crystal Ball predicted this. And it's a shame that this is where we are, but this is where we are. And when you see the results here, you're reminded why we need something like the PRO Act. The PRO Act is a phenomenal piece of union legislation. And if implemented, it might end up being more crucial and important than even the $15 minimum wage. Because that has, you know, wide-ranging effects for workers. It, it effectively, you know, the PRO Act, among other things, bans right right-to-work laws, so-called right-to-work laws, which is really right-to-work for less. Um, when you look at countries that have near-universal collective bargaining, what you see is just phenomenal conditions for workers, where they have more time off, better benefits, phenomenal pay. I mean, in some Scandinavian countries, they have near-universal collective bargaining, and they don't even have, like, minimum wage laws, because what would be the effective minimum wage is, like, 30 or $40 an hour. Because that's what the union does, is they fight for, you know, better pay, better benefits, more time off. And um, what we see here is Amazon, it has a pretty terrible record. Now, Bernie Sanders and Ro Khanna effectively forced them to pay a $15 minimum wage, which is fantastic. But COVID really showed um, just how terrible they are, because they didn't have the proper... Uh, safety rules and protocols in place and people were getting sick. And then, of course, there was this story that Ken Klippenstein broke about how drivers are pissing on the road and in bottles and shitting in bags. And, you know, they do this because there's, it, there's implied pressure and threats that you need to get all your deliveries done. And if you don't get all your deliveries done within a certain time window, then, you know, there's going to be consequences. You might get fired. And so Amazon desperately, they desperately need a union. And unfortunately, it was voted down, and it was voted down decisively. Now, a lot of that, yes, you can pawn off to veiled threats, um, sketchy practices, illegal practices from management, but you also can't pawn it all off to that. I want to be honest about the shortcomings here. And when you read on in the article, it becomes very clear. Um, one of the strategies of the organizers were to tie the union effort into the civil rights movement and the Black Lives Matter movement. And so that was a, a thing that they really leaned into. They talked about uh, racial issues tied to um, the unionization effort. And they have quotes from workers. And by the way, this, I, it's like about 80% or something like that, uh, black warehouse. And they have quotes from some of these workers in some of these articles. And they're basically like, I don't, like, don't do that. Like, what? Why are we talking about the Black Lives Matter movement? Because, you know, again, 80% or so black workers at this warehouse, and a lot of them are like, I'm not necessarily down with everything in, in the Black Lives Matter movement. Why, and they felt like it was a little bit of an apple and oranges, like, why are you trying to tie that into what we're doing here? And the people were effectively like, hey, man, I just want to pay my bills, and I just want to, you know, have health care. And 
I don't know why you're bringing all this extra stuff into the conversation. That was, that was the sentiment. That was the sentiment. So I think there was actually a giant strategic error on the part of the organizers to try to link in the Black Lives Matter movement because even at an 80% plus black factory, there's a lot of disagreement on the Black Lives Matter movement and their perception of the movement. And they don't know why that's coming into the conversation involving their job. When a lot of them said, hey, I didn't feel like race was in, an issue at all in my employment here. So I don't know why we're talking about that. So the argument wasn't made directly enough and clearly enough that when it comes to the unionization effort, what this is really about is making sure there's COVID safety protocols so you don't die on the job, you know, making sure you have increased pay, you have uh, paid vacation time, you have better benefits. It wasn't, it wasn't clear to them that, for example, one of my favorite facts about unions is that um, in the, the so-called right-to-work states, the workers make, I think it's about $1,200 or $1,300 on average less. And in the, in the union states, workers make over $1,000 more per year, and they have better uh, vacation time, better benefits. That argument wasn't made clearly enough to people. You know, it wasn't, the argument wasn't made clearly enough to people that when you look at U.S. history, what was called the golden age of economic expansion, the post-World War II period, one of the things that led us to have a thriving middle class in this country is uh, high unionization rates. And that there was a direct correlation between, you know, the, the health of the working class and unionization rates. And as unionization rates declined, the middle class declined. You know, these arguments were not made explicitly enough. And so I think there was a strategic error on the part of the organizers where they leaned too much into, the, into race because you have black workers telling you, I don't know why we're talking about this. Oh, I just want to pay the bills. And so I, I do think that was a, a failure on their part. But again, I, you can't say enough about the, the way in which management implies threats. They have veiled threats. Um, and they pull out all the stops and all the tricks to get people to vote against their own best interest. So here we are. This is the result. And my reaction to this is that I've never seen a better argument for the PRO Act. I've never seen a better argument for something like card check. I've never seen a better argument for why we need to change the default setting in the country. You know, And the Republicans and uh, management has done a superb job of flipping the conversation and turning it into a choice thing, you know? You have the choice to determine whether or not you're in a union. And that's a really disingenuous way of talking about it because saying, I'm going to give you the choice of making less and having worse benefits. That's really what the question is. That's really what they're proposing. But they they lie about it and they act like, well, if you join a union, you're actually just going to pay them a, a portion of your paycheck and they're not going to deliver on anything. So really, the unions are like oppressive. But that's just a lie based on the numbers, based on the data, based on what we know about how these things function. There's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of anti-union propaganda. And by the way, that's another thing that the PRO Act bans. There, there would be, you know, they're not, management wouldn't be allowed to do their bullshit anti-union propaganda if the PRO Act passes. So it's a real shame. Um, I'm sad by the result, but also if you're somebody who's on the left, you know, Setbacks really shouldn't impact your, uh, your commitment to fighting. If anything, 
the opposite of what you think should happen is what should happen. So in other words, after you have a defeat, okay, redouble your efforts. Don't tuck your tail between your legs and go home sad. You've got to redouble your efforts because nobody's coming to save us but us. And so this is what you have to do. And I'm sad that it failed, but we move on and we keep fighting, and hopefully eventually we'll get to a point where unions and uh, the unionization rate across the country is a lot higher, and then the working situation will be much better for people all across this country. Okay. Next. Let's go to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And then we'll go to Kamala after that. I've been doing a lot of stories lately, beating up on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I, you know, I take zero pleasure in it. I don't want to do it. Uh, I'm just re- responding to the stories that are out recently. And unfortunately, there's been a lot of stuff that's letting down the left. I mean, it is what it is. That's, you know, I'm reporting on what is happening. I'm not coming up with something on my own and spinning it or whatever. And again, it brings me no pleasure. The last thing I want to do is spend my time bashing people who are closest to being allies of ours who have some position of power and authority. But you're going to see why I have to cover this in just a second. So here she is. She was invited by some Jewish group to uh, talk about Israel. And, man, does she do a poor job giving her perspective on this conflict in the Middle East. What actions do you think can be taken to support movements towards peace Uh, both between Israelis and Palestinians, as well as within the entire region, such as uh, the Abraham Accords. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, you know, earlier just now, you and I were were talking about the what and how. And I think that when we talk about establishing peace, um, censoring people's humanity, protecting people's rights, it's, it's not just about the what. And the the end goal, which often gets a lot of focus, um, but I actually think it's much more about the how and the way that we are coming together and how we are how we interpret that what and how we act uh, in you know the actions that we take to get to that what. And so, what this really is about is it's a question more than anything else about process. And so, we really need to make sure that um, that we are valuing a process where all parties are respected and have, you know, a lot of equal um, opportunity to really make sure that we are negotiating good faith, et cetera. That being said, you know, I think that there's, there's just this one central issue of, um, of settlement. Because if, we, if, the what, if the what that has been decided on is to stay, then the action of settlement is in, it, it's not the how to get to that what. And so, you know, I think that that's a, a central thing that we need to make sure that um, we center and that we value um, Jewish and, and rather we value Israeli, um, uh, 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 we value the, the, the safety and, and the human rights of Israelis. 
and value the safety and the human rights of Palestinians in that process that is similar and that uh, on, on um, equal footing. And so all of that is extremely important in that process. That was terrible. And that was a, a, an extremely politician answer is what that was. How can I make as much noise as possible without saying much of anything substantive? Let me fill the room and fill the air with sounds while not really touching on anything that's concrete. So, I mean, the question was like, what actions can support peace in the region? You know what a non-bullshitting answer would be? The United States should cut off all um, subsidies and should cut off all weapon sales to Israel. That's what should happen. We shouldn't arm them because they're effectively doing apartheid. Um, and we shouldn't give them subsidies because why are we giving them billions of dollars every single year when we don't even have universal health care and they do? Why are we doing that? Why are we doing that? So cut off all subsidies uh, to the region and stop arming them because they're colossal human rights violators. So that's a good answer. You know what else is a good answer? BDS. Boycott, divestment, and sanctions of the illegally occupied territories that everybody agrees it's in contravention of international law. That's what you do. You do boycotts, you do divestments, and you do sanctions of the occupied territories in an attempt to put economic pressure on Israel to force them to do the right thing. That, that's a non-bullshitting answer. What actions can support peace in the region? There's your non-bullshitting answer. BDS, cut off subsidies to Israel and cut off arms sales to Israel. There you go. There you go. None of that was said. The closest we got to anything substantive was that she said the word settlements. That's the closest we got to anything substantive. She said, it's not just about the what, it's more about the how. And the way we are coming together how we interpret that what and the actions we take to get to that what. But it's really about process. We need to center and value Jewish, rather Israeli, safety and human rights and the Palestinian safety and human rights. What exactly are you in favor of? What exactly are you in favor of? Tell me exactly what you're in favor of. She doesn't know. She doesn't know. She doesn't know what she's in favor of. If she supports BDS, she would have said I support BDS. If she supports cutting off all arms to Israel, she would say that. She supports... Um, you know, cutting off the subsidies to Israel, she would say that. She didn't say any of that. She just said the word settlements, which is the closest thing we got to anything substantive, and that's not, there's not really much there. Her overarching point was almost like it's not really my, it's not on me to say is basically what she's saying, and she's saying the process is the most important thing. There needs to be a process towards peace. Well, the process towards peace has been a ruse for decades now. Nothing's come of the process towards peace. Really, all that does is it allows Israel to stonewall the world and gaslight the world as they continue to expand their Ill- illegally occupied territories. So that, that's what the process has actually gotten us, and she alludes to the two-state solution there. Listen, I didn't originally have this, this view, but I'm, you know, I like to grow and learn more based on the evidence and based on what's occurring. And what I see now is that yeah, it appears like the two-state solution is also a total ruse. Because all they do, just keep, keep arguing, well, we need a process towards peace and a two-state solution. The more you say that, the more you 
gaslight everybody, and the more you buy time to continue to expand to effectively do apartheid and even ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians. And so the real, if you listen to activists, the real thing they're calling for is, what if we had one state with democratic rights for everybody? So that's the real solution. Have one state and have democratic rights for everybody, including Palestinians. But ah, they don't want that. They don't want that. They want to continue to have an identity-based state, a Jewish state where you have people who are not Jewish are second-class citizens, if citizens at all. So the real answer is a one-state democratic solution. And by the way, I love the hypocrisy of the United States and our politicians and our people claiming we care so much about human rights and freedom and equality for all and democracy. And then if you call for democracy in the context of the Israel-Palestinian situation, what do they say? Anti-Semite. You're an anti-Semite for actually having a principled belief in favor of democracy. How does that make me an anti-Semite? Well, because of the history of what happened, and so the Jewish people get their own state, and so if you're against that, if you're against an identity-based state, a theocratic-based state as well, if you're against that, you must be an anti-Semite. Or I have a principled belief in democracy, and that doesn't, that doesn't oscillate or change based on bogus claims of bigotry. How about that? So, but there was nothing substantive there. Something, peace process, something, two-state solution. There, there's never going to be a two-state solution. Israel has continued to expand every year for decades. So what are they going to do? They're going to take 97% of the land and then create a state where 97% of the land is Israel's and 3% is Palestine? They're not going to do that. It's not going to happen. So here we are. The left flank of the Democratic Party in Congress when asked about Israel and Palestine, the effective response is process, two-state, it's not about the what, it's about the how, and and it's sad. And listen, you know, you have people who are on the left in Congress who are more more interested, some of them are way more interested in domestic economic stuff. And they don't even have the right strategy to get that stuff implemented, but they're more interested in domestic and economic stuff. And foreign policy, they just sort of have the same passion or interest in that. And so the result is you get answers like this. There are some that are good on foreign policy, but it's very few and far between. And uh, instead, we get a lot of this. How do I try to say the thing that's going to mimic the stuff that I think left-wingers are saying without really saying anything or pissing off the guy she's talking to or the Israel lobby or whatever? Here we are. So that was a terrible answer. Don't you dare defend it because you'd be silly if you did. And um, God, I hate being perpetually let down by anybody with any position of authority, but here we are. Okay, next. So I missed this video. It's about, a, it's about a week old, I think. I missed this, but it just popped up on my radar recently. Um, Kamala Harris was doing some event, and look at the Freudian slip she had. 
And here's the other thing, because I also, you know, in a lot of meetings on foreign policy, you know, for years and generations, wars have been fought over oil. In a short matter of time, they will be fought over water. So when we think about building up our economy around our infrastructure on something like water policy, it's literally about jobs. It's about the fundamental source of life that Tammy Duckworth is talking about. It will sustain life. And it's about strengthening up our nation. All right, so first of all, let's just get this out of the way now. She's correct that there will be wars over water. But, you know, that's happening because of climate change. And, you know, this is, it's going to get ugly, and it's going to get ugly quick. And it is, I think it's pretty much inevitable. There's also going to be gigantic refugee crises, way worse than what we have now, because there's going to be giant regions that are, uninhabitable because they're just the temperatures are not conducive to human life staying there, you know? And a lot of conservatives, they might have a light bulb moment at some point when the Middle East is basically emptying. Then they're like, oh my God, why are there so many refugees? (gasps) And they're brown. And they're going to hate it. And it's going to be like, well, this, this was predictable. This is one of the results of climate change. And you don't want to do Dickie McGee's act about it. So here we are. So she's right about uh, wars over water, for sure. That's going to happen. But I don't know if you caught it early on there. She said that in a lot of meetings on foreign policy, and for years and generations, wars have been fought over oil. Reminds me of that meme popped up on Twitter. It's from some show where uh, some guy's like, he admitted, he admitted, he admitted the thing. That's what everybody's like, ah. She admitted, she admitted the thing, the the thing that they were trying to hide for so long. And the thing that I think is beyond fascinating about this is she led into that comment by saying, I've been in a lot of meetings on foreign policy. So that's like, yes, I'm the VP, I'm in the meetings with representatives of whatever, the deep state, the CIA, the FBI, you name it. I'm in the meetings with the generals, people from the Pentagon, I'm in the meetings with them. I'm in the meetings with the president, the cabinets, probably weapons manufacturers. We're we're in the meetings. And, yeah, wars have been fought for generations over oil. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Because, remember, they called all of us conspiracy theorists when we pointed that out with the Iraq war. That's what they did. That's what they did. You were a conspiracy theorist. You were Alex Jones if you said, hey, maybe oil has something to do with this. And to be clear, that's not the only thing, you know, like we've discussed this a thousand times on this show, but whether it's the war in Afghanistan, so what's the war in Afghanistan fought over? Well, they have trillions of dollars worth of mineral wealth in Afghanistan. So a lot of the stuff that makes your smartphone function comes from Afghanistan. Trillions of dollars of mineral wealth. Um, There's opium. In fact, we've had U.S. soldiers guard the poppy fields there. Um, That's on the record. We know that as a matter of fact. So there's one thing. The other thing is, Smedley Butler says the military-industrial complex. Dwight Eisenhower pointed out the military-industrial complex, where war is profitable. War is a business in this country. A lot of people make a lot of money from war. Um, You have things that the military uses, parts for guns and tanks and planes and all that stuff. You have stuff made in all 50 states. So war is intricately tied to the economy of every state in the Union. So not only that, you have these no-big contracts, and you have the corruption of the military-industrial complex, the 
so-called defense contractors buying the politicians and the politicians returning the favor by giving them all these contracts and all this taxpayer money. And so there's a lot of people who get wealthy off of it. So that's another reason why the war is going on in the case of Iraq. Yes, oil had something to do with it. The other thing is when we're the world's sole superpower and the imperialist nation on the planet, we care about the geopolitical strategy of having control over certain regions we consider vital to counter China and to counter Russia, who we view as our top uh, you know, potential enemies. So, I mean, the, the admission is amazing. And it's funny because this is, again, one of those things where not a peep about it in mainstream media, CNN, even Fox News, MSNBC, not a peep about it, but basically all over new media, among people who think for themselves, they're like, oh, my God, whoa, whoa, look at this. Look what she just said. Look what just happened. So quite a moment, quite a moment, and it really shines a light on what's actually happening. And I do think it was more of a Freudian slip. I do think if she thought about it, she wouldn't have said that. She would have hidden it. She would have been very politician-y like Connolly usually is. But instead here, she just had a moment where slipped right out, and here we are. Now you know. How many... How many civilians have died in the Middle East because of wars over oil? And how many U.S. soldiers have died because of wars over oil? And think about the bullshit they told you every step of the way as people you know and love were fighting in that war or innocent civilians were dying in that war. Every step of the way they told you, no, this is about freedom, this is about democracy, this is about defeating Saddam Hussein, who's a threat to us. This is what they said, and they were lying to you every step of the way. All right, let's make fun of Dr. Fauci. Dr. Fauci. <laughs> that's, that's to the song Roller Coaster. You know the song I'm talking about? Go listen to it right now. Roller Coaster. <laughs> Just switch that out with Dr. Fauci and you have a instant hit. Okay, here we go. Dr. Fauci did an interview with uh, Mehdi Hassan. Now, Mehdi and I have had our issues uh, over the years. We've fought a few times on Twitter over a variety of things. He was big on the whole voter shaming people on the left if they want to sit out the election or they want to vote for a third-party candidate or whatever. He was huge on, like, you're just a terrible person and you must vote for Biden or else, you know. Um, And he's, like, the least – he provides the least convincing arguments. He just shames people, which in turn makes them hate him more and make them want to vote for Biden less. So – It's just totally ineffective and silly. But anyway, I'm off on a tangent here. I digress because this isn't about that. He actually does a decent job with a lot of these interviews that he has on his new show um, where he asks questions that others in mainstream media don't ask and sort of holds people accountable a little bit. So there's an example of exactly that. He had Dr. Fauci on. Look what happens. Let me ask you this one other question about the past, because you said we need to move forward. I agree with you. And one of the problems we have now is we have a lot of people, bad faith people, saying we don't trust Anthony Fauci, we don't trust Joe Biden, we don't trust uh, the scientists. But there are others who, in good faith, just genuinely over the last year, and I think you've recognized this in the past, about the mixed messaging uh, and some of, the, you know, some of the different advice they've gotten on this very thorny disease. I want to play a clip of you speaking to 60 Minutes just over a year ago. Have a listen. Now, when you see people and look at the films in China and South Korea, whatever, everybody's wearing a mask. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. Right now, people should not be walking. There's no reason to be walking around with a mask. 
given you acknowledged in that clip in March 2020 that Asian countries were masking up at the time, saying we shouldn't mask up as well was a mistake, wasn't it? A huge mistake at the time, not just in hindsight. No, I, you know, it, we, I, I keep seeing that clip getting played over and over again. So if you could give me 15 seconds, I'll go right back at you with this. Okay. At the time, three things were going on. We were told very clearly at the coronavirus task force, including by the Surgeon General, who's a good person all the way, that there was a clear shortage of masks. And if we went around recommending masks, the healthcare providers who were putting themselves in harm's way every single day would not have enough. Point number one. Point number two, there was no evidence at the time that masks outside of the setting of the hospital worked. There were no data to show that. Number three, we did not know that at least 50% of the infections were being spread asymptomatically, namely by people that had no symptoms. That's the reason why at that time we, I and others, made that statement. Fast forward a month or two after, A, it became clear yeah. there was no shortage of masks. In fact, cloth mask works. B, we started to see rather substantial data that masks outside of the setting of the hospital work to prevent infection and to prevent you from infecting somebody else. And three, we found out to our horror that 50% or more of the infections were transmitted by people who did not know they were infected. That's the reason why I changed. So, wait, let me just finish, because you showed the clip. First of all, if something is static and you change your mind about it, you're flip-flopping. If something changes, the data change, and you change with the data and rely on the data, you're not flip-flopping, okay? Uh, Mehdi never said the word flip-flopping, and he didn't accuse you of flip-flopping. I don't know why, uh, you know, his focus became people's perception of him about this. He said, if something is static and you change your mind, you're flip-flopping, but if the data changes and you change with it, you're not flip-flopping. Yeah, but the argument is, it, you're, when you said it, it wasn't based on the data. It wasn't based on the data. And you, he kind of admits it, right? His first, very first point in response to this video being played, this hideous video being played. He says, the Surgeon General, who's a good person all around. I, I, what does it matter if the Surgeon General is a good person or a bad person or some, somewhere in between? That has no bearing on anything substantive. By the way, it's hilarious. He pretends, I, I only care about the data. When his very first comment was like, the Surgeon General, who's a good person, so I believe them because they're a good person. I don't know if a good person or a bad person. It's irrelevant on the truth value of what they're saying. So he says, the Surgeon General, who's a good person, said there's a clear shortage of, shortage of masks and we need them for healthcare providers. So you're admitting that when you said, ah, it's not a good idea to walk around without masks, or, or excuse me, it's not a good idea to walk around with masks, that you were lying. That's what, you admitted it without even realizing it, Dr. Fauci. You just admitted that. You admitted that you told a lie. Because you didn't say in the old clip, hey, it's probably a good idea to wear masks, but since we have a shortage, I need everybody to not buy the masks because we need them for our frontline healthcare workers. You didn't say that. In fact, if you did say that, I don't even think this would be as big of a scandal as it is because people would be like, I mean, yeah, I want a mask, but it's a reasonable thing for the, one of the leading health officials in the country to say. 
that we might have a shortage for frontline healthcare workers and they should get priority on masks over some random schmuck who barely goes outside, right? But he didn't say that. You didn't say that. Instead, you said masks don't work. And you said it a number of times. That just happened to be you also said it on freaking 60 Minutes, which is embarrassing. So you said masks don't work. You said don't buy masks, but you just admitted that the real reason was, well, the Surgeon General said we might have a shortage so we need them for frontline healthcare workers, so that's why you shouldn't buy them. That's categorically different than saying they don't work or it's not a good idea to wear them. That's categorically different. So funny enough, in his response, he basically admits up front, like, yeah, I was lying. But he doesn't view it that way, which is kind of crazy, right? Like somehow, it's almost like a Trumpian thing where Trump feels like if I'm caught in a lie, I could just override it and insist I wasn't lying, even though it, it, it's right there for everybody to see. It's just the, the insistence that, no, it's not that, even though it literally is that. Kind of, it is kind of Trumpian. Isn't that crazy? Um, then the second thing is this, is, this one actually pissed me off even more than the admission of basically, yeah, I was lying, without really saying he was lying. He says, well, there's no evidence that masks outside of hospitals worked. Did you really just say those words? I'm just following the data. And so the date, we know that there's data that masks work in hospitals. There's no evidence that outside of hospitals that they work. All right, so let me ask you a question. What if to deal with the, you know, flow of cases, the surge of cases for COVID, people set up an outdoor hospital? Or they set up a hospital um, in a former mall which went out of business, and so it's an, empty, it's an empty space now. But they can bring in some beds, bring in some equipment, and turn it into a hospital. What Dr. Fauci says, hey, at this, at this one new outdoor hospital, or at this new previous mall hospital that we've now converted in, excuse me, previous mall which we've now converted into a hospital, at these two places, don't wear masks if you're one of the doctors or nurses. Don't wear them. Why? I don't have evidence that masks work outside of the context of a hospital. So the thing was a mall, which is not a hospital. So how do I know masks work in the mall? Or when you do the outdoor hospital, I know you're right on top of and face-to-face with COVID patients, but there's no evidence that a mask works in that context. It only works in the hospital as far as we know from what the data shows. That is the most Weasley bullshit I've ever heard in my life, and you know he doesn't believe that, and you know he'd never say that. Of course, if they converted some other building like a mall into a hospital, he'd be like, all right, we need masks for the workers. Of course he'd say that. The idea what masks somehow only magically work in hospitals, but they don't work elsewhere, they don't work at the bus stop, they don't work in, in the mall, they don't work in a, a restaurant, they don't work in a store, How ridiculous! How ridiculous! How ridiculous! Now, yes, it might be the case that particularly outdoors, it's harder for COVID to spread because it's not enclosed, right? Of course. But that doesn't mean that masks don't work in that context as well or help massively in that context as well. What a ridiculous thing to say. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, and he knows he's bullshitting. You think he doesn't know what I'm... Of course he knows what I'm saying. No evidence that masks outside of hospitals work. As if, like... That require we know if they work in one enclosed space, why wouldn't they work in another enclosed space? 
what again just it's just beyond absurd oh no we need a study to show that the the masks that work in one enclosed space also work in another enclosed space i know one says hospital on it the, the fact that the other one says mall on it even though they're both both enclosed spaces maybe it doesn't work in the mall so so ridiculous and he says oh we didn't know about asymptomatic spread so listen he's he's a bullshitter i hate to say it. i know a lot of people out there love dr fauci for whatever reason but this is bullshit and he ruined his credibility and when you ruin your credibility you undermine science that's what happens because now people don't know when you're saying something that's true and when you're saying something that's convenient and a lie to serve your interests so the lie he told you could say hey it, there was a good reason for it because they wanted to protect the frontline hospital workers yeah there was a good reason for it but you just destroyed your credibility so now everything else you say people are going to question so you could have said exactly what you just said there. Hey, masks are probably a good idea, but we need them for frontline workers. So everybody pump your brakes on buying masks everywhere. That's it. That's it. But he didn't say it. He lied and destroyed his credibility. And now, so I don't get, the other thing I don't understand is the hero worship of Fauci. Why are you doing fucking magazine covers? The guy's been on the cover of a thousand fucking magazines. He's given interviews to a thousand outlets. He, did, he presented an award at some award show. I don't know what it was. I don't remember what it was. Maybe some Nickelodeon shit or some Golden Globes or whatever the fuck. I don't know. He presented an award at an award show. Why are you going around doing these unserious things when we still have a pandemic that's raging? Ain't no mission accomplished, bitch. This reminds me of Cuomo. In the middle of the fucking outbreak, he writes a book like, how we defeated COVID-19 by not actually defeating COVID-19 at all and having a surge right at the moment as I'm writing this shit and not listening to real experts who know what they're talking about. What are you doing? There shouldn't be a single goddamn magazine photo shoot thing. There shouldn't be any hero worship. There shouldn't be any like mission accomplished nonsense or some pats on the back. You've done a terrible job. You were advising Trump. Now Trump oftentimes overruled Fauci and Trump is even dumber than Fauci. True. But like you didn't do a good job. So it's just, I mean, what a joke. Is there, are there, like, I feel like when it comes to politics and media, there's zero accountability. You fail up your entire life and your entire career. If you're in corporate media and you push the lie of the Iraq war, you're probably still on TV today. You pushed an illegal and offensive war that killed minimum hundreds of thousands of civilians, but you got promotion, promoted all along, you know? Apparently in government, and it's not just for actual politicians, you could be a health official who is wrong about one of the biggest things and you're still treated as some sort of demigod. And here we are. So, you know, I have no sympathy for him. He ruined his credibility. I know a lot of you guys like him. Guys, I, I really need to try to break you free from that mindset of like, well, he was better than Trump, and so therefore he's good? No, you could be better than Trump and still be a colossal piece of shit. To say you're better than Trump is like saying I'm better than fucking Jeffrey Dahmer. Congratulations. Like, that's nothing to fucking write home about. So get the partisan brainworms out and realize that something like this is inexcusable. You know what? There's plenty of people out there who are experts, who are scientists, who would have never lied about this, who would have refused, who would have said, no, I'm not going to go out there and say masks don't work in the middle of a fucking pandemic. And even, guys, a lot of countries were masking up from day one of this. You want to know why? There are countries that had had pandemics previously, and they learned their lesson. And we have leaders here who are so stupid that they can't learn the lessons that other people already learned, that masking up is obviously a good idea in a pandemic. 
they lie about it. They do these incredible lies about it. And then they're condescending towards you when you call out the lie. Fuck out of here. Fuck out of here. What a joke. What a failure. He shouldn't be in this position of authority. Anybody who is willing to lie about that is willing to lie about anything. And that's what you need to take away. Okay. Next. Next, next, next. All right, let's go to Howard Dean. Howard Dean, and then I'll take a quick break. So Howard Dean um, is a guy who many people have described as the Bernie Sanders of 2004. So in other words, um, he was the left flank of the pr- in the primary, in the Democratic primary in the 2004 presidential race. Now, remember, this was an era where... Um, George W. Bush was president. We just really started the war on terror. The war in Afghanistan started in 01. The war in Iraq started in 03. This is 04. This is peak like war fever. Um, And Howard Dean famously said, I'm from the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party. And he said that to be like, this John Kerry guy is a piece of shit who's trying to be diet Republican, who's trying to be like, I agree with George Bush on everything. I'm just smarter, so pick me. That really was the Kerry campaign philosophy. By the way, how did that work out? So um, Howard Dean also had that, you know, the famous sound he made, yeah, or as Dave Chappelle uh, parodied it, yeah. And uh, then the media made a big deal about that. He tanked in the polls. He ended up failing miserably. But what's not discussed as much is what happened after this race. What happened after this race is devastating. Howard Dean, who seemingly was a progressive lion and actually, again, was the Bernie Sanders of 04, um, he became the most soulless, principleless corporate shill of all time. He became a lobbyist without, reg- without registering himself as a lobbyist, and he works for Big Pharma. So with that being said, with that context, take a look at what we just learned. So this is from Lee Fong in The Intercept. He said, Howard Dean, the former progressive champion, is calling on President Joe Biden to reject a special intellectual property waiver that would allow low-cost generic coronavirus vaccines to be produced to meet the needs of low-income countries. Currently, a small number of companies hold the formulas for the COVID-19 vaccines, limiting distribution to many parts of the world. IP protections aren't the cause of vaccination delays, Dean claimed in a column for Barron's last month. Every drug manufacturing facility on the planet that's capable of churning out COVID-19 shots is already doing so. Creating a new medicine is a costly proposition, wrote Dean. Companies would never invest hundreds of millions in research and development if rivals could simply copy their drug formulas and create knockoffs. I'm going to respond to every point here, okay? But first of all, let me just say this. What he's advocating for is genocidal. We have the ability to make COVID vaccines, but we're not going to let other countries, developing countries, third world countries, mass produce those vaccines to give to their own population because it might cut into the profits of our pharmaceutical industry. That's what he's saying. So let's damn countries that are developing to 
having a raging pandemic and hundreds of thousands or millions of people dying because I'm looking out for Pfizer. That's what he's effectively saying. That's really what he's saying. So, um, so he says, well, IP protections aren't the cause of vaccination delays. Uh, counterpoint, yes, they are. Yes, they are. He goes on to say, every drug manufacturing facility on the planet that's capable of churning out COVID-19 shots is already doing so. That is 100% verifiably, provably false. Demonstrably false. That is not true. In fact, there's a bunch of factories in developing countries where they're begging. They're saying, let us make it. And there are lawsuits where they're trying to come to deals with the pharmaceutical industry in the U.S., where the pharmaceutical industry gets their cut or whatever, and then allows them to make the vaccines, but they're begging, let, let us make it, let us make it. And there's lawsuit, there's litigation, it's tying it up. And people are not getting the vaccine as a result of it in a lot of these developing countries. So he's just, he's just lying, he's just wrong, he's just wrong. And he says creating new medicine is a costly proposition. No, it's not, it's not a costly proposition. We're talking about cheap generic versions that we know work exactly the same as the ones that have been already produced. And then the final and the biggest lie is this. Companies would never invest hundreds of millions in research and development if rivals could simply copy their drug formulas and create knockoffs. You want to know how the original vaccine was made? The Moderna vaccine? The mRNA vaccine? The original one? $500 million of investment from U.S. taxpayers. So in other words, you invested half a billion dollars. They created this vaccine. And then they want to turn around and say, they were the ones who created it with their own money, and if we get rid of the intellectual property rights, well, why would anybody create this vaccine at all? Because we have a need for it, and we have scientists that exist who do the research. Go ask Jonas Salk about this, the guy who created the polio vaccine. Famously, when they asked him if he was going to patent it and make a zillion dollars off it, he said, would you patent the sun? In other words, I have this thing everybody needs to survive. Really? I'm going to do price gouging and screw people and eliminate some people from being able to afford it? What kind of a soulless, vapid, cretin, immoral, unethical, bastard prick would I be if I did something like that? But Howard Dean says the exact opposite. Howard Dean's like, yeah, don't let people in developing countries have it. Fuck them. The guy who was the Bernie Sanders of 04, this guy, he should never be brought up in the same sentence, paragraph, never be brought up at all in the conversation with Bernie Sanders, even though I did it earlier, just to illustrate the point that he's not that, really. Because look at what he's become. He's become the biggest soulless cretin on the planet. And this is what happens when you get a little taste of that big pharma money. You got nothing else going for you. You're a joke of a person. You get a little taste of that big pharma money, and you become a paid shill where you advocate for genocide. Yeah, let people die. Let hundreds of thousands or maybe millions die because we don't get the vaccine to developing countries because I want to look out for the profits of Pfizer or Moderna or whoever. Beyond ridiculous. And he's lying about every single point here. Every single point is, is a lie. And taxpayers pay for the research and development for a lot of these medicines. $41 billion the National Institute of Health spends for research and development for new medicines. Nationalize big pharma. Because we do the research and development, and then they swoop in, get the rights, and then they double charge us and price gouge us on the back end. If I pay for it up front, why should I pay for it on the back end? nationalize big pharma and do it right now. You've never seen a better example as to why that needs to happen. And by the way, they've been making veiled threats at the Biden administration because they're considering lifting the intellectual property rights for them, the patents for them. They're considering getting rid of it so that everybody can get the vaccine in the world. 
They haven't done it yet, which, by the way, it's fucked up they're even just considering it. You should do it immediately. But basically Big Pharma's like, it'd be a shame if you don't work with us in the way we want you to work with us. You know, there might be consequences to that. You know, hey, maybe we, maybe we don't donate to you or your party or whatever anymore if you go down this path. There's a lot of veiled threats around it. So just understand something. Point blank, period, this is genocidal. It is. And Howard Dean is advocating for an effective genocide to protect the profits of Pfizer and Big Pharma. All right. Let me take a quick break. When we come back, Noam Chomsky on Joe Biden. Stay right there, y'all. That should be a juicy and interesting one.
We are back, bitch. We are back, bitch. Bitch. All right, so um, let's talk about... Did we do the... No, we didn't do Noam Chomsky on Joe Biden yet, I don't think, right? Yeah, we didn't. Okay, we're going to talk about that, then we'll get into... um, the propaganda on Afghanistan. I have uh, YouTube facing a, a backlash over what they're doing to independent media. I got to give you some specifics on uh, the jo- Jordan Charidan because his what's happening to him is somehow even worse than what's happening to us at Secular Talk. We're able to weather the storm a lot better because we were already a, a pretty giant size. He's getting just destroyed. So we're going to talk about that. <clears throat> but first, let's, let's go to Chomsky. So Noam Chomsky um, gave an interview recently on a radio show, and uh, he was asked about how Biden is doing. And I want to show you his comments. This is interesting to me. He says, I must say that what Biden has done so far is a rather pleasant surprise to me, Chomsky told Barsamian. It's better than I would have expected pretty sharply criticized on the left for flaws and omissions in the, the domestic policy. These criticisms are, in my view, correct, but a little bit unfair. There's only so much you can do when half of the Senate is, no matter what you say, is going to be 100% against it. So um, I largely disagree with this, and, and, and I'll break it down for you. There is a grain of truth in what he's saying. The grain of truth is, I think it's a fair assessment to say Biden has gone bigger than you could have predicted going into his presidency. Because going into his presidency, you could have thought he would have gone full Obama style. And it is true that he hasn't gone full Obama style. He has gone a little bit more bold and a little bit bigger than Obama. I do think that's fair to say. But that's where the credit really ends, in my opinion. Um, because Chomsky's given him a little bit too much leeway. He says, oh, um, the Senate is the problem. The Senate's blocking it. Well, they have the ability to either get rid of the filibuster or to turn it into the talking filibuster, and they haven't turned it into the talking filibuster, and they haven't eliminated the filibuster. So you can't hide behind the, oh, my God, the Senate is the problem when you have the tools to circumvent it. Now, the tool that they've decided to use to circumvent it to this point is reconciliation, which is good. But again, you can even expand the reconciliation rules where instead of getting like two or three cracks at it a year, you can give yourself more cracks at it. So basically, they've done like, in some ways, the bare minimum in the procedural arena. So for him to say, well, if the Senate's going to be against it, what are you going to do? That's just not really an accurate criticism because there are ways around it, and these are ways that Biden has not exhausted. So you have to ask the question, why hasn't he exhausted it? Now, this is where you get into, he's one of the, he's old school corporate centrist, and he feels like, oh, I'll I'll cut deals with Republicans. But they've shown time and time again, we ain't going to work with you, dude, especially not on any sort of left-wing priorities. If Mitch McConnell's agreeing to whatever you want to do, you're probably proposing something terrible like Wall Street deregulation. Um, so I don't really agree with Chomsky. The other thing is there are things that Biden can do. 
himself right now without the Senate, that would be phenomenal for the country. And he hasn't done them. So, for example, Biden has the ability to eliminate all student loan debt. He hasn't done it. Now, you might say, well, Kyle, come on, that's a Bernie Sanders pipe dream that only like Bernie would do that. Biden said he won't do that. So how could you criticize him by that standard? Well, okay, I don't accept that criticism. But even if I did, he hasn't eliminated 50,000 of student debt for everybody, which he has the ability to do, which was in the conversation. He hasn't done that. He eliminated like less than 1% of the student loan debt. And it was only for the people who went to like literal scam for-profit colleges. Less than 1% of student loan debt did he get rid of. So you can't say, oh, I've been pleasantly surprised, um, and then act like, well, the Senate's against it, it's the Senate's fault, when there are things Biden can do on his own and he hasn't done them. Here's another example. Legalize marijuana, or at least decriminalize it, by taking it off of the list of Schedule I substances. He could do that right now if he wanted to. He hasn't done it. He hasn't done it because he doesn't believe in it, and he doesn't deserve credit when he can do something that would substantively you know, help so many people like that, he hasn't done it that you can't praise him when he has the ability to do a tremendous amount of good with one little thing and he refuses to do it. Think of all, he was a drug warrior. If anything, he should feel terrible. All these people locked up, their lives destroyed over nonviolent drug offenses. Joe Biden helped build that system. And his son Hunter is an addict. He has nothing but unending sympathy and love for Hunter and rehab for Hunter but he wants to lock up everybody else's kid. He wants to lock up black and brown kids for doing the same thing or not even as much as Hunter has done. And I'm going to give him credit or blame the Senate? No, this is on him, Noam, and he hasn't done it. But I haven't even given the biggest thing yet. I mean, these things are big, right? Student loan, it hasn't eliminated student loan debt, hasn't even eliminated 50000 of student loan debt, hasn't decriminalized marijuana, taken it off the Schedule One list, hasn't done any of that. He hasn't done... He hasn't pulled out of Iraq. He hasn't pulled out of Afghanistan. He hasn't done anything on foreign policy. He didn't even get back in the Iran deal, which is a deal that the administration that he was a part of, they negotiated it. He campaigned on getting right back in it. He didn't do it. You know, the public option. Now, granted, he would need the Senate for this one, but he campaigned on the public option. He immediately backed off of it and said, oh, we'll just, you know, subsidize the health insurance companies, which is a giant ruse and a racket. It's a scam to give more money to his donors. So, no, you can't. Like, listen, man, I get it. I'm not, I'm not on the side of doing a full false equivalence between the Democrats and the Republicans or Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. I genuinely believe that the people on the left who act like they're exactly the same, that's not substantive. You're incorrect. And it's incredibly sloppy thinking. There's a massive difference between the kind of package, the kind of COVID relief package that the Democrats put together versus one that the Republicans put together. There's a, there is. There's a giant difference. There's a giant difference um, in, in a number of areas, in a number of arenas when it comes to the Democrats versus the Republicans. Look at the tax plan. Look at Biden's tax plan. He wants a higher corporate tax rate. That's better than a lower corporate tax rate. Granted, he split the difference. It was in the middle. But middle is better than really low. <laughs> you know, he, the top marginal tax rate, he wanted at 39%. Under Trump, it was what? Now it was dropped to what, 30%? Something like that. So there is a difference there. So in other words, I don't agree with people who do the full false equivalence and act like their parties are exactly the same and Biden's exactly the same as Trump. That's just not true. It's not true. But however, having said that, I think Noam Chomsky's gone too far in the other direction, acting like there's way bigger of a difference than there really is. And 
blaming it all on the Senate, you can't blame it all on the Senate. You just can't. If Joe Biden wanted that $15 minimum wage in the COVID relief package, he could have gotten it. But he had to fight for it. But he didn't fight for it because he doesn't really want it. You know, same with the $2,000 checks instead of $1,400. Now, granted, $1,400 is more than Trump's shitty $600, right? Uh, now, he pretended like he wanted to. Didn't really fight for it in the way that he was pretending to, right? So, 1400 better than 600 but he said campaigned on 2000 He didn't do 2000 Could have gotten it in there if he wanted to, but he didn't because he didn't fight for it. So, you can't, you can't have a politician do the bare minimum, then not really fight, and then give him credit and blame the Senate for all of his failures. If Biden was giving his all and was still coming up short, I would point that out for people. But he's not giving his all. He's not doing the carrot and stick approach, trying to get Manchin and Cinema to fall in line. He's not crusading for the issues that I care about and many lefties care about. Again, he hasn't done any of the procedural stuff, which he could do right now, which would drastically improve the likelihood of him getting stuff through. Um, so I don't know. This is just too much credit. This is just too much credit. I don't think the critici- there are some criticisms of Biden that are unfair. I think I just laid them out. The ones that say he's exactly like Trump in every way. I just don't think that's true. I don't think that's accurate. Um, but I think Noam Chomsky is giving him a little bit too much credit and pawning off a lot of the failures to the Senate when it has nothing to do with the Senate. You know, definitely his failure on student loan debt has nothing to do with the Senate. His failure on the drug war has nothing at all to do with the Senate. His failure on foreign policy has nothing to do with the Senate. He's already bombed Syria. He's been in office for seven and a half minutes. He's already bombed Syria. I mean, come on, what are we doing here? What are we doing? Why, where, why are we continuing the same policy with Venezuela, considering the, continuing the same policy with Iran? What are we doing? And Noam Chomsky knows this. He cares the most about foreign policy. So I don't know, I don't know why he's saying this. I think it's too soft and too kind on Biden. Um, so, you know, one of the things that has really been concerning to me is that the left has gotten so beat down for so long that even very critical thinkers and independent thinkers over time have sort of accepted the shifting right of the Overton window and the spectrum of debate. And um, that's, that's sad, you know, because then I think this is why fewer and fewer people get involved in politics is because they see like the little crumbs you're getting. And now you have really independent thinkers who are sort of celebrating the tiny crumbs we're getting. And it's like, that's just gross. And that turns off a lot of people instead of having real conversations about real solutions and trying everything we can to get them and, you know, shooting for the stars. We're accepting the half measure of the half measure and now lying to ourselves and acting like, well, it's good because it's the left flank of the spectrum that we're allowed to debate in. Well, the left flank of the spectrum that we're allowed to debate in is like center right <laughs> is like very pro corporate, very sad, neoliberal war hawkish. It's just, it, it's a sad thing to see. So anyway, stay true to your beliefs and your principles and fight for them. And you don't have to lower the bar because it's fashionable to lower the bar because other people want you to. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying Noam Chomsky doesn't really believe this stuff. I think he does. I just think that perhaps Chomsky of a previous generation would be a little harsher than he's being here. Okay. Okay, next. 
So the media is now uh, really, really going all in on propaganda about the war in Afghanistan. This is, this is pretty disgusting. So CNN says, concerns are mounting from bipartisan U.S. lawmakers and Afghanistan women's rights activists that the hard-won gains for women and civil society in Afghanistan could be lost if the United States makes a precipitous withdrawal, yeah, so precipitous, we've been there 20 years, precipitous withdrawal from the country. President Joe Biden has suggested it will be difficult to meet the May 1st deadline for U.S. troops to leave the country as dictated in the deal the Trump administration signed with the Taliban. However, there are fears that if the U.S. withdraws troops before the conditions on the ground are right, regardless of the date on the calendar, there will be a sharp and possibly catastrophic backslide. Today in Afghanistan, women have a very special place they are stronger than ever, and they have achieved what has never been achieved before. They cannot be ignored. They will not be ignored. Fatima Gailani, an Afghan women's rights activist and one of the four women on the Afghan government's nego- negotiating team, said at a recent Congressional Women, Peace, and Security Caucus's virtual discussion. So, this is the dirty trick of using identity politics to try to whitewash neoconservatism and militarism and imperialism. That's what this is. So the argument is they're trying to say, no, actually the left-wing position is to want to stay in the illegal and offensive war that we've been waging for over 20 years. That's the real left-wing position. That's the real feminist position. That's the real position of human rights believers is to say, we have to stay there permanently because we have to protect the women. As if the reason why we were there was to protect the women. As if that was the original reason that was given and the whole purpose of the war. I got news for you. That's not even close to the purpose of the war. And I got a bridge to sell you if you think that the Pentagon and the U.S. military, their primary concern is human rights of women around the world. Our top ally is Saudi Arabia. They're imprisoning women's rights activists right this second. Right this second. And we give them money and weapons and support. If we really, oh, we're doing a crusade for women's rights. Really? So when are you invading Saudi Arabia? Now, I don't want you to invade Saudi Arabia. But if you were, if you actually had standards around the thing you're pretending to have principles and standards on, you would want to invade Saudi Arabia and topple the government and foster a women's rights revolution. Instead... They imprison women's rights activists, and you're like, cool, you want more money and more weapons? It's almost like you don't really care about women's rights. So do you understand what's going on here? This is a dirty trick to try to defang anybody who would make the anti-war argument. Oh, I guess you want women to be enslaved permanently? You want us out of Afghanistan? How dare you? You must really hate women. That's what this is. And... Corporate media goes right along with it. CNN goes right along with it. I love that. Precipitous withdrawal. Precipitous. We've been there 20 years. At what year is it not precipitous? If at 20 years in, it's precipitous. 21 years? 25 years. 47 years. How many years before you wouldn't describe it as a precipitous withdrawal? Imagine calling it precipitous. And it's not even like you could say in the time frame that Trump gave us that is precipitous. No, they penned this deal a while ago and gave us plenty of time to May 1st, months and months and months. And they're like, oh, well, we can't withdraw this fast. This fast, we've been there 20 years, and he gave you months and months to do the details of the withdrawal 
in the meantime, and they're still all precipitous. Get out of here. This is rank propaganda from the Pentagon and the deep state and the military-industrial complex. That's exactly what this is. And if you don't see it, honestly, you're pretty blind. You would have to be blind to not see what's going on here. And by the way, I'm giving Trump too much credit. The deal with the Taliban, it's not even a full withdrawal. It keeps thousands of U.S. troops there. So don't give Trump credit, just like you don't give Obama credit. Because Obama said, oh, he talked the anti-war game, and then what did he do? He did the surge in Afghanistan. When he did withdraw from Iraq, he went right back into Iraq. So they're, not, he, they're yo-yoing the troop levels. That's exactly what, that's exactly what Obama did. That's exactly what uh, Trump did. And now that's exactly what Biden's going to do. He's going to yo-yo the troop levels. And Biden's dumb enough to fall for whatever bullshit. You know, just like Trump was, you send a general in there with his fucking nicely pressed uniform, looks really serious, as Trump would say, straight out of central casting. Send one of them in there to, in very serious, somber tones, oh, Mr. President, this is not a good idea. And my experts tell me, if you give us more time and more money and more weapons, that eventually we're going to win this war. Really? Define victory. Define victory. We were told we have to go into Afghanistan to get Osama bin Laden. Bitch, mission accomplished like a decade ago. I don't know. Yeah, over probably a decade ago, right? No. I'm not remembering the exact year he was killed, but it was years ago. It was years and years ago, okay? That's why you said we have to go in. Mission accomplished. Fly the flag. Come home. It's over. Well, we said to get Osama bin Laden, and we got him. And in Iraq, we said to get Saddam Hussein, and we got him. But see, what happened was reasons and stuff and things, and we need to stay there longer for... In Afghanistan, they say, oh, the Taliban, the Taliban, um, we need to stay there to fight them. Really? Did you know that today the Taliban has more control of the country than they did when we initially invaded? So if your definition of victory is we have to limit, you know, the territory the Taliban has, by your own standards, you were a miserable failure in this war. Miserable failure. So what are you doing? So what are the real reasons? Oh, right, to protect women's rights, I'm sure. No, it has a lot more to do. In the case of Iraq, it has to do with oil. In the case of Afghanistan, it has to do with trillions of dollars of mineral wealth and opium and the military-industrial complex and people getting wealthy off of war. That's what it has to do with. And it has to do with imperialism and geopolitics and maintaining control of a vital region where we can counter the influence of China and Russia. Again, this is not, this is what, this is what, they know they're doing it for, as they tell you the lie in the fairy tale, and the, we're fighting for democracy. Really, we're fighting for democracy. Our top ally is Israel, a fucking theocratic apartheid state, and Saudi Arabia, a theocratic state who is currently involved in a genocide in Yemen. Please care about human rights and democracy. We're aiding a genocide in Yemen. That's what we're doing. Human rights and democracy or women's rights. Get the fuck out of here. Did you know? Our top allies in Afghanistan, warlords with child sex slaves. That's not Kyle Kalinske saying it. That's, not Kyle. That's, that's proven, documented reporting from the region, which says we've had U.S. soldiers be discharged from the military when they blew the whistle and said our top ally, who we're given money and weapons to, has a child sex slave chained to the bed, and they discharged the people who blew the whistle. We care so much about women's rights that we allowed little girls and little boys to be sex slaves to protect the women's rights. Who really believes this? We need to protect the people of Afghanistan 
by bombing the Kunduz hospital and killing dozens of civilians. We need to make sure that the Taliban doesn't bomb hospitals there. So we'll bomb them first to make sure they can't bomb them. I can't imagine being duped by this propaganda at this late date. By the way, just so you know, there was a poll that came out, I think it was in 2013. The war in Afghanistan is now more unpopular than the Vietnam War at its height of unpopularity. It has less than like a 20% approval rating, which, by the way, shows you that it's a colossal fraud that we live in some sort of representative democracy. It's not representative democracy. They just ignore the will of the people whenever the people say something. We want a $15 minimum wage. We want to end the wars. We want universal health care. The response is, ha, ha, good one. We're going to go ahead and keep fighting the wars and keep, in, keep your wages low and keep not having universal health care. And you can go fuck yourself. So that's where we are. And um, corporate media goes right along with it at every step of the way. And, by the way, new media and independent media, we're here to call this stuff out. And what do they do? They suppress us. They put us on a separate algorithm. So if you... Watch news and politics on YouTube. You are going to be force-fed CNN, MSNBC, Fox News. You're going to be force-fed um, one of the ones that people say all the time, which is better than being force-fed CNN or MSNBC, but still not good, is they'll force-feed you like sort of like the, the fake outsider stuff, like John Oliver, you know. Um, again, better than CNN and MSNBC, but really that, that's like the limit of where they let you go, right? And then... So they even admitted it years ago. There was a press release from YouTube. They said, oh, yeah, because of all the scandals, what we're going to do is we're going to push authoritative news sources and crack down on borderline content. So you know what borderline content is? Right here. I'm borderline. Why? Because I'm an independent person talking about news and politics, and they, don't, they can't control what I'm going to say. They don't know what I'm going to say. So they say, just to be safe, just push them off to the side. Push them off to the side. So I'm on the algorithm that doesn't really get recommended to new people. If you're a viewer of Secular Talk, you might get stuff recommended and you might watch it, so I might come up in your feed. But if you're a new person who's not already watching Secular Talk, guess what? We're not, we don't spread to new people. We gain like a thousand subs a month now. When, when everything was more fair and there weren't separate algorithms, we would gain 30,000 subs a month, 30,000 a month. Now we're up to, we're down to about a thousand a month. Not because the show got worse. That's not because, you know, we're not doing a lot of videos or whatever. No, it's because there are separate algorithms, and we're on the algorithm that they suppress. That's why. And this is the stuff that they force feed you. We, we need to stay. Experts say we should stay in Afghanistan to protect women's rights. We're very serious reporters and journalists here. This is the stuff they want you to believe. They want to control the narrative. They want to, give, they want to feed you this, and they want you to be, uh, you know, a brain-off drone who doesn't have critical thinking skills and goes right along with whatever the establishment dictates. It's really pathetic, and um, yeah, I just highly recommend you support new media however the hell you can because this is what we're up against. We're, fight we're engaged in a fight with two hands tied behind our back, and these are our opponents people who are lie to you and do blatant, brazen propaganda, and they're going to get away with it because they've rigged the rules. Okay, now speaking of this issue, I actually want to jump right into this because we just touched on the topic, so it's hot right now. Let's talk about the Jordan Sheridan thing. 
One of the things we've been talking about a lot on this show is the, I think it's fair to call it the outright suppression of independent news and politics on YouTube. Um, well, we have quite possibly the biggest example, the worst example of this sort of suppression, and it comes in the form of a friend of the show, Jordan Chariton. So um, Jordan reached out to a bunch of media outlets to try to explain what was happening at status quo behind the scenes. Virtually everyone told him to take a hike, not interested in the story, even though the details of the story are out of this world. So um, the one outlet that was like, okay, we'll cover it, believe it or not, was Fox News. And I'm sure that the reason Fox News covers it is to do a little bit of a ha-ha moment because their narrative is, oh, conservatives are being censored in social media, right? Um, and now it's like they're covering it to be like, see, chickens coming home to roost. They're also censoring progressives. So what did you learn? You see what I'm saying? So, like, there is a little bit of a weird angle and motive in them covering it. But listen, ultimately, I don't care because this needs to be covered and this word needs to get out as far and wide as humanly possible. So uh, the title of the article in Fox News is, YouTube faces backlash as progressive journalist claims tech giant trying to push us off the platform. Status quo's Jordan Chariton says YouTube's suppression of independent journalists favors mainstream outlets. Now, by the way, that absolutely includes, and Jordan himself would say this, this includes Fox News. This includes Fox News. Um, they are a beneficiary of the algorithm on YouTube that force feeds everybody CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, CNBC, and every authoritative outlet. By the way, just up front, let's talk about this. The notion that they're authoritative is preposterous. No, they just have the most money and the most influence, and they're the biggest institutions and organizations and corporations. Because we know CNN and MSNBC got Russiagate dead wrong. They were Alex Jones-level conspiracy theorists, and they were dead wrong. There were no consequences for it. These are all outlets that tried to bury and hide the WikiLeaks in 2016 that showed the primary was rigged against Bernie Sanders. So they, they engaged in massive cover-ups. All these outlets pushed for the illegal and offensive war in Iraq, which killed hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians. They all got the Syria attacks wrong. There's a number of things that they were the ones who were pushing conspiracy theories. They were dead wrong every single step of the way, but somehow they're still authoritative and they get force-fed everybody and people who got this stuff right get screwed, get absolutely screwed. So um, in the case of Jordan Chariton, it, this is really, really egregious. So what happened is he, he does actual investigative reporting. He will go on the ground where things are happening and talk to people. So one of the things he was on top of was what happened in Flint, Michigan, um, how the water was poisoned by terrible policies and corruption. So he goes there and talks to people on the ground in Flint, Michigan, and they tell, yeah, my kid has all these symptoms, and we've been poisoned, and they still haven't fixed the water, and the water's still not clean, and all this. He's one of the only people who's there. Jordan Chariton is doing the work that mainstream media outlets should be doing if they actually gave a shit and did their job properly. So one of, one of the recent things he did is what? He was on the ground for the January 6th attempted insurrection uh, in D.C. at Capitol Hill. He was live streaming the entire time. He got amazing video. He would talk to people who believed in the Stop the Steal stuff, and get this, they would push back on the narrative. So they'd talk to people who were like, ah, I was stolen, it's, you know, Joe Biden stole the election, and they would have all these crazy narratives they concocted around it, which were verifiably false and untrue. So all tested in court, and every single time the Trump team lost. And Jordan Chariton would interview these people, because they're real people, and this is a real news event, and he would push back. The footage was so good 
mainstream media outlets licensed the right to use the footage. They spoke to Jordan, they licensed the right to use the footage, and they ran it. They put it on their own YouTube channels, they ran it on TV. Guess what? YouTube pulled down his footage of it and censored him. They pulled down the stuff from the status quo YouTube channel, gave him a strike, warned him, this violates our policy of, uh, of disinformation. And at the same time, see, this is how you know they're full of shit about the algorithm. At the same time, they pulled down Jordan Sheridan's coverage from the January 6th insurrection where he pushed back on the narrative they were floating out there. They left up the exact same footage on mainstream media channels. The exact same footage. Go ahead. Tell me that there's not separate algorithms, one for independent news and politics and one for corporate news and politics. Go ahead. Tell me. Guys, Crystal Ball is my co-host on Crystal Kyle and Friends. She is fortunate enough to be with The Hill, which is a corporation, a news outlet, She's had open conversations with me about this. Like, wow, it really is kind of crazy and messed up what's happening to all the independent outlets. She knows the reason, one of the main reasons their stuff takes off massively. They do phenomenal work, by the way. But one of the main reasons their stuff takes off is what? Because they're part of the Hill, a corporation. And so they're on the correct algorithm, the fair, equal playing field algorithm. And so she did a video the other day. It's already got 1.4 million views. When was the last time a secular talk video got 1.4 million views? Am I not, are my titles not good? Are my tags not good? Are, is my content or the stuff I'm talking about not interesting? Of course it's interesting enough. We're on the separate algorithm. And status quo is getting it even worse than secular talk. So we, we were down, in subgrowth, we were down 88%. 88%. So there was another crackdown on independent borderline channels. We're down 88% in new subgrowth. You want to know how much Jordan Sheridan is down? 130%. His channel has about 100,000 subscribers, and he's now losing subscribers all the time. They have fully buried his stuff. So not only is he on the shittier algorithm, now with YouTube pulling down his videos and giving his channel strikes, the same videos that they're allowing CNN to run, there's, they're like hiding all of his stuff. They're hiding it. So anyway, listen, this is a long way of me saying, go subscribe to Jordan on YouTube. Help out independent news and politics, however you possibly can. Because listen, we are fighting with both hands tied behind our back. There's no doubt about it. On this show, the way we primarily fund ourselves is through small recurring Patreon donations. So if you can, donate $2 a month. It helps colossally. Or pay $5 a month on Substack to get Crystal Kyle and friends. That helps massively as well. But the main point is, like the videos, comment on the videos, share the videos as far as wide and possible and do your small recurring donations to this outlet and other outlets as well who are on the left and are independent because there's no other way for us to do this thing because we are fighting with both hands tied behind our back, and it truly is unfair. And I don't think there's any way we could beat the algorithm in the sense that we can get back to the, to the views and the subgrowth that we had previously, but we have to try. What am I going to do? Are we all going to lay down on a chalk outline of ourselves? And honestly, I don't know how much longer an outlet like Status Quo can last. See, we're fortunate enough that we were big enough up front that when they suppress us, it only works to a certain extent, right? With him, he didn't hit that tipping point yet, so now they could just totally obliterate him. And by the way, here's the response from the YouTube spokesperson on this. YouTube spokesperson Ivy Choi told Fox News that the status quo video, quote, 
was removed in accordance with our presidential election integrity policy, which prohibits content uploaded after last year's safe harbor deadline that alleges widespread fraud or errors changed the outcome of the 2020 U.S. presidential election. That is bullshit. That is bullshit. That is bullshit. They're saying, hey, this alleges fraud and errors, so they're saying the election was fraudulent. That is not what the video says. Jordan Chariton interviews people who say that, and then they push back. Chariton and people who work with him push back. They disagree. Don't tell me it's not newsworthy to live stream an attempted coup, an attempted insurrection at the Capitol. We all know it's newsworthy, which is why you let CNN run it and MSNBC run it and other outlets run it. You know 100% it's newsworthy. But why, when Jordan posts a video, and he also pushes back on the narrative of some of these people that he's interviewing, why is that not allowed? The answer is, we don't like independent news and politics, and we don't even differentiate between somebody pushing a conspiracy and somebody debunking the conspiracy. They want us off the platform. They want us off the platform because we're a headache for them, because they don't know what we're going to say, they don't know what we're going to advocate for, and they'd rather play it safe for their ad money. And so this is no longer an open and free platform where you can say whatever you want and organically build an audience, and it's not an equal playing field. That's what you need to understand. So listen, I feel terrible for Jordan. 130% decrease in sub growth, which means he's losing subs every month. They're hiding all of his videos. They're pulling his videos down. They're doing strikes on his channel because he's doing real reporting and real journalism. And it's, it's unacceptable. The fact that CNN and all these other outlets play his footage and they can keep it up on YouTube and get it monetized, and his stuff gets pulled down and he gets a strike, is an indictment on YouTube. It's an indictment on YouTube. Don't tell us you care about the small creator or the independent creator. You don't care at all. You care about the ad money and you care about propping up mainstream outlets which always get shit wrong. Because then it's safer and people won't yell at you if some asshole right-wing channel happens to get something monetized. It's just, this isn't a right-left issue. This is a censorship issue. And anybody who's not already part of the club is going to get screwed. And so now you know it. Okay. Next. We have some new numbers on the increase in billionaires during the pandemic and the depression, and it's not pretty. So this is originally from the Washington Post. They say, the number of newly minted and reissued billionaires soared last year, Forbes reported Tuesday in its annual ranking, an accumulation of personal wealth that stands in sharp contrast with the widespread economic struggles unleashed by the pandemic. The number of billionaires on Forbes' 35th annual rankings swelled by 660 to 2,755, a roughly 30% jump from a year ago, and 493 of them are first-timers. Seven out of eight of them are richer than they were before the pandemic. Forbes calculated net worth by using stock prices and exchange rates from March 5th. Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, with an estimated fortune of $177 billion, topped the list for the fourth year running. Tesla chief executive Elon Musk came in number two at $151 billion, the shares of both companies soared last year, largely contributing to both men's net worths and causing them to toggle for the richest man title on various lists. Now, 
There's another article. I think we probably covered this previously, but I needed to refresh my memory on this, and I looked it up. Apparently, by 2026, which is very soon, not very far away now, is it? By that year, it is very likely somebody, and they actually point out Jeff Bezos in the article specifically, will be a trillionaire. A trillionaire. Trillionaire. Let that sink in. So um, I'll give you some more information. They point out in the article, quote, as a class, billionaires added about $8 trillion to their total net worth from last year, totaling $13.1 trillion. Wow. The United States has the most billionaires, 724 of them, extending a rapid rise in wealth that has not happened since the Rockefellers and the Carnegies roughly a century ago. So like the robber baron era, the Gilded Age, in the United States, the top 400 wealthiest, wealthiest Americans now own the equivalent of 18% of GDP in wealth, twice as much as in 2010. Do you understand that? The 400 wealthiest Americans in 2010 own 9% of GDP, which is insane. 400 people with 9% of GDP, now it's double that. The 400 wealthiest people have 18% of GDP in wealth. 400 people, 18% of GDP in wealth. 400 people. A fraction of the top 1% have nearly 20% of GDP in wealth. I've gone over these numbers before, but this is very similar to what happened leading into the Great Depression with uh, income level. So when the U.S. was relatively stable economically and we had the golden age of economic expansion in the post-World War II period, uh, the top 1% would earn about 8, eight or 9% uh, of the nation's income. Top 1% would earn 8 or 9% of the nation's income. Leading into the Great Depression, that number was the top 1% was earning about 23% of the nation's income. Way out of whack. Leading into the Great Recession, it was about the same. It was about 23% of the income going to the top 1%. Now, we, now they're telling us in terms of uh, GDP. So this isn't necessarily income, it's in terms of GDP. But this is insane. Even since 2010, they've doubled their share of wealth. And at the same time this is happening, people are falling into poverty all over the country. You know, we've gone over it in detail, but even pre-COVID, about 78% of the country was living paycheck to paycheck. Half of workers were making $30,000 a year or less. Tens of millions of people don't have health insurance. At least 500,000 people are homeless in this country. And by the way, they ever get rid of these protections, these COVID protections from evictions, that number is going to skyrocket. Foreclosures and evictions are going to go through the roof. There's a, you know, another article that came out recently which pointed out that now Wall Street is basically buying up all these properties and then basically jacking up the prices. And we, so we have an artificially inflated housing market at the moment. So do you understand that? They'll buy up the properties and they'll like outbid each other, these Wall Street firms, and then artificially inflating uh, the housing market, and then they, they rent it out to people at exorbitant rates that they can't afford. Or if somebody wants to try to buy it, they charge them a ridiculous amount that they can't afford. And nobody has money. And we had a depression and a pandemic. We still have what is effectively a depression and a pandemic, and here we are. So... Ask yourself this question. How can it be? How can it be? We have a pandemic and a depression. 
but the rich are getting way, way, way richer, way richer. Is that acceptable? Is that fair? Is this because of merit? Are they just working harder than everybody else? No. And people are onto the trick now. They understand. Hey, this isn't a meritocracy. They didn't just work harder. Plenty of people who are good people who work really hard and try to provide for their families, they got the rug pulled out from underneath them with this pandemic and this depression. And now they're starting to understand how unfair the system is. So if you want to know who's really screwing you, it's not some poor brown or black person who has no money and no power. No, it is the billionaires. It's the corporations. And it's the fact that they bought and owned the government and rigged the policies against regular people. And that's what we have. Did you know that it was about a year or two ago, for the first time ever, billionaires paid an effectively lower tax rate than your average working person? An effective lower tax rate than your average working person. How insane is that? That's a regressive tax system. That's what that is. There was the Rand Corporation study, which I cite all the time now. $47 trillion was stolen by the 1% from the bottom 90% since the mid-1970s. If you just kept the, the, the pay ratio the same, then working people would all have $1,144 extra per month for their entire lives. If you had the same pay structure as the post-World War II period as you do today. So the bottom 90%, everybody in the bottom 90%, would be $1,144 wealthier per month for their entire life. So the rich have stolen effectively $47 trillion from the bottom 90%. That's where we are. This is unsustainable. And we don't have basic social democracy to ameliorate these ills. We don't. We need it. We don't have it. We don't have universal health care. We don't have free college. We don't have paid vacation time by law. We don't have higher wages. Here we are. This is unsustainable. Look out. All right, next. I'm going to show this to you here because this is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. It's one of the dumbest tweets of all time. So uh, Senator Marsha Blackburn, who's not the smartest person in the world, said, President Biden's proposal is about anything but infrastructure. And uh, look at what she's maligning. In his infrastructure proposal, there's $400 billion towards elder care. And it says at the bottom there, President Biden's fact sheet, the American Jobs Plan, creating jobs and raising wages and benefits for essential home care workers. So she's saying this as if it's some sort of got you, as if it's some sort of like, I owned you, Joe Biden. In your infrastructure proposal, you want to give $400 billion towards taking care of old people. Disgusting. We're against taking care of old people. And this is the party that the Democrats struggle to beat sometimes. This party. These people. Marsha Blackburn, one of the last times I covered her, she was on CNN debating climate science with Bill Nye, the science guy. So this know-nothing Republican congresswoman took the position of, like, climate change is fake. And they had her debate Bill Nye, the science guy. I love that because that's just CNN in a nutshell, isn't it? Uh, but, I mean, look at this. It doesn't get any sillier. It doesn't get any more ridiculous. 
how on earth do you say such a thing? And you think this is an appealing message, basically putting your middle finger up to old people, telling them we don't want to take care of you? Home care workers are essential, and they need, we need more of them, and they need to be paid better. I mean, I don't, I don't know if there's even an ideology at the core of somebody like Marsha Blackburn or any of these elected Republican politicians in D.C. I think their entire worldview is, number one, own the libs, and number two, be corrupt. Do whatever corporate America wants and own the libs and just be complete partisan tribal idiots to the point where even if Biden proposes something obviously intelligent and moral and ethical and good, like taking care of the elderly, they're like, bah, I'm against the elderly. I hate the elderly, actually. Thank you. With a competent Democratic Party, they would have a field day with this mess. You know, there's a lot of power in Democrats unapologetically arguing for a social democratic platform, but they don't do it. I mean, imagine a party that was unapologetic about fighting for universal health care, Medicare for all, um, free college, a living wage, ending the wars, a Green New Deal, a new New Deal, legalizing marijuana, everything. Imagine how easy it would be to win elections if you had very straightforward people arguing for these straightforward solutions, and these are the people you're up against. The fact that you can't beat these people is the saddest thing in the world, because they, she's one of the dumbest people on the planet, with, and this is one of the dumbest tweets I've ever read. So her ideology of own the libs and be corrupt is beyond that. All right, final story of the day. Here we go, y'all. Here we go. So Newsmax, and I believe One American News Network as well, although I don't have the numbers for that one, but Newsmax has imploded. Take a look at this from CNN Business. They say, Newsmax TV gained a lot of attention last fall when disaffected Fox News fans flocked to the, to the channel uh, in mass, in mass, I don't know the right way to pronounce that, for the first time in Fox's 24-year history. It had a real and measurable 24-7 competition from the right, and that's still true, but Newsmax's Nielsen ratings are way off their post-election highs. By one measure, comparing Newsmax peak week in mid-November to a low point at the end of February, Newsmax's audience has lost more than half its audience. Marissa Sarnoff wrote for Mediaite last week. A Newsmax representative said those figures were misleading and noted that all cable news viewership has declined since the election. That's true. News ratings rise and fall like tides. But what Newsmax Newsmax experienced was more like a flash flood followed by a dry spell. As political media critic Jack Schaefer recently commented on Twitter, the story is not just the decline of Newsmax, but its wild spike and subsequent decline. So let me give you some hardcore numbers. Fox News gets about 1.5 million views. Um, And there was a time when Newsmax was really nipping at their heels, and they would get over a million views at the same time Fox was getting 1.5 million views. Um, In fact, there was was a few instances where Newsmax beat Fox. However, now their viewership is about 150 or 175,000. So Newsmax, 150, 175,000. Fox News, about 1.5 million. So, in other words, they totally imploded. Now, why? Why is that the case? Because it was a sugar high. That's all it was. It was fake. So, Fox News called the election for Joe Biden at a reasonable time to call the election for Joe Biden. And Newsmax refused. And they went all in on the Stop the Steal stuff. They went all in on fraudulent election stuff. And so, they were telling far-right audiences what they wanted to hear and giving them false hope. 
problem with false hope is that it's false. And when Joe Biden became president, got sworn in, and had been in office for weeks, for a lot of those people, a lot of the Stop the Steal people, a lot of the Q people, they had a light bulb moment. And they realized they'd been had. And Fox News, they didn't like Fox News when they were telling them the truth about Biden. Because they didn't think it was the truth. When it became clear it actually was the truth, the people who fled Fox News to go to Newsmax went right back to Fox. I actually think there's a, there's a positive story to take away from this. And the positive story is tiny little tricks and gimmicks generally don't work. They generally don't work. Um, and in the long run, you probably get rewarded for telling the truth. Now, it's, unfortunately, it's a slightly different situation for new media and independent media because we get suppressed by a YouTube algorithm. So it's, it's slightly different. But um, it actually is, it, I would rather have people listen to Fox News propaganda than Newsmax or One American News Network propaganda because as bad as Fox is, they're not as bad as One American News Network or Newsmax. I mean, they thought they found a cheap shortcut to getting viewers and to hold that audience, but they couldn't hold that audience. And because what happened after the whole Stop the Steal thing imploded? What happened? Greg Kelly, their lead guy at like 7 o'clock, was out there critiquing Biden's dog and saying Biden's dog doesn't look presidential. So that, the other thing is they're just so – they're not ideological. And it's harder to be consistent when you don't really believe in anything. Now, I think Fox News believes in stuff, but they're wrong. They have stuff they believe in, but they're wrong. In the case of Newsmax, I just don't think they believe in anything. There's no core. There's no ideology. And I've pointed this out a number of times, but isn't it interesting? When somebody talks about building a network or an outlet to the left of MSNBC, what they mean is I want somebody who's focused more on policy and is willing to fight for that policy and people who are more substantive and will even hold my team, the Democrats, accountable. That's what somebody means when they say, let's create an outlet to the left of MSNBC. When somebody says, let's create an outlet to the right of Fox News, what they mean is, give me somebody who's even more sycophantic to Donald Trump. Give me somebody who has no principles, no policy beliefs, no substance, but will play defense for daddy all day long. And that's exactly what Newsmax and One American News Network was. It was a cheap sugar high. It wasn't sustainable. Because what happens when Trump is gone? Even in the best case scenario for these people, Trump is still going to be gone for four years, right? Maybe he could run in 2024, maybe win... But he's going to be gone for at least four years. So what are you going to do in that time frame? Talk about stop the steal the whole time? Can't do that, right? So what are you going to do? Ah, I guess we'll just talk about Biden's dog. Because they have nothing to say about policy. So all day it'll be cancel culture, cancel culture, cancel culture, cancel culture, and Biden's dog is ugly and unpresidential. Okay, well, uh, look at what happened. Look what happened. Your viewership totally imploded. And even though Fox News took that short-term hit when they said, yeah, Biden won, viewers came back. Because Biden did win, didn't he? So there you have it. Um, they're even worse than like, than like right-wing YouTube channels. You know what I mean? Like I do think Newsmax and One American News Network are almost like uniquely terrible in how vapid they are, how dumb they are, how much they believe in nothing, how tribal they are. So um, they're really getting what they deserve. That's for sure. All right, guys. I love you, baby. Everybody have a good rest of your day. I'll talk to you soon. Peace.